If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking today at a very, very famous passage of Scripture. We're going to look at the 23rd Psalm this morning. But what we want to do is we want to look at it in the context of Psalm 22 and Psalm 24 on either side of it. We're closing out our series today entitled God of the Valleys. And we're talking this morning about the last valley. You know, uh, one of the most frequently uh, memorized and oft-quoted passages of Scripture in the entire, entire Bible, I'm convinced it is the 23rd Psalm. It's a beloved passage of Scripture that has been probably been spoken in more hours of need and prayed as a prayer in times when people are really hurting and really suffering than any other passage of Scripture in the Bible. So what, what I want to do today, I want us to read it together. You may have memorized it from a different uh, version or something, but I want us to read it together for our scripture this morning, and then we'll get into the word. Read it together out loud with me. And if you don't have it on your, on your Bible or on your phone screen, you, you'll be able to see it on the screen here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we do so today, God, knowing our need. Your word is clear that those who are poor in spirit will be blessed. And Lord, we admit our poverty to you. We confess our deep need. We, we long to hear from you, God. I, I know that these people have, have not gathered in this place this morning to hear the voice of any man. They long for a word from you, from your word. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Commune with us deep within the inner man. Lord, I'm not asking you that when we leave this place that any person will remember the sermon or, or, or remember the preacher. I'm asking God that when they leave here that every man and every woman in this place will say, surely this day I have heard from God. I believe you for this, Father, despite the frailty of this vessel because of the, the magnificence of your grace. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. King David is one of the most fascinating people in all the Bible. And if you've known me or heard me very long, you know that he's one of my favorite Bible characters. And, and he, I even did a whole series of studies on the life of, of King David. Uh, but uh, there, there is hardly a life ever lived that has so filled up the pages of history with both the ugly and the beautiful. I believe that David was one of those characters that, that just looms larger than life. His, his righteousness seems larger than life. His sins are larger than life. We, we read every now and again in history of somebody whose life goes from rags to riches, but David's life goes from rags to riches to rags to riches to rags to riches. The, the, the unbelievable peaks and valleys of his life and his fortunes are astounding. He, he was a man who won magnificent political and, and military victories from his childhood on because of the anointing of the Spirit of God on his life. He, he, he was a man who wrought great deeds for God and then he would turn around and commit adultery and conspire to, to do murder 
and then find the righteousness and the grace of God to overcome that and overcome deep personal tragedy in his own family. To the point that he's even called a man after God's own heart. But there is an aspect of David's greatness and of David's life that is rarely explored from today's pulpits. Though it is not a frequently announced concept, I believe that it is biblical. And that is that in addition to being a poet and a warrior and a king and a lover and a musician and a politician, David was also a prophet. The, the deep prophetic insights in the book of Psalms are at times almost, almost breathtaking in their awesome revelations of God and, and, and of the of magnificent New Testament truths. It's, it's hard to understand, honestly, to me, why David is not numbered among the prophets more frequently. And not the least of these prophetic revelations and of insight uh, uh, is, the, is the insight afforded to us in this trio of Psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And I'm going to zero in today on Psalm 23, specifically zero in on verse 4 where he wrote, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The last valley through which all humanity will walk, including every person in this room should Jesus tarry, is the valley of death. This is the last valley of human experience. We're going to zero in on that, and we're, we're going to come to that, but, but the truth is that, that, that reality loses its meaning in Psalm 23 if we don't see the 23rd Psalm as divinely situated. I, I believe perfectly situated by the hand of God and the mind of God right between Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. I don't believe that the arrangement of a single word of Scripture is by accident, and these three Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, in themselves they sort of form a kind of a biblical valley. There is the peak on the one hand of Psalm 22, and there's the peak on the other hand of Psalm 24, and the valley of the shadow of death is sandwiched right between them. Now, what is the peak of Psalm 22? Turn back from Psalm 23. You probably don't even have to turn a page in your Bible. Turn back to Psalm 22. It, it, this passage is a shocking and awe-inspiring passage of Scripture. And it begins like this. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And th those words are Aramaic, the, the common language of the people of Israel during the time of Christ. And the words Jesus said were the Aramaic translation of Psalm 22. Every person within earshot of the cross that day when Jesus said that would have recognized the words that he was saying and they would have identified them with Psalm 22. And those words mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's stop before we read on and try to visualize David, the king, as he comes out of his inner chamber, his harp is in his hand, and he, he says to someone, he says, send a messenger down to the temple and tell Asaph to come. Now Asaph was the chief musician of the whole realm, and Asaph gets the message and he arrives breathless. The king says, Asaph, I want you to sit down and listen. I'm going to play something for you. I, I don't have the melody all worked out yet, but I, I want you to listen to what I sing. Now Asaph knows the anointed talent of the king and he sits quickly, ready to write down every word that drops from his mouth. Then the king begins to sing something that he has never imagined hearing. 
Verse 1, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers evil encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, o you my help, come quickly to my aid. And as David finishes the melancholy little refrain, he looks into Asaph's eyes, now filled with tears, and he says, what do you think about that? And Asaph says, your majesty, I've, I've never heard anything like it. It's, it's like a dagger in my heart. These, these words pierce me at some inner part of my being. The words are mournful, but they're more than just the words of a lonely man. The, the picture that these words excite in my mind is almost unbearable to me. But, but your majesty... Who is it? Is it you? Is, is this some foul criminal? Who are we talking about here? David says, you know, Asaph, I'm not sure. As I began to sing and minister to God and the Holy Spirit, this song and these words came up out of me, and I'm as amazed at the horror that they elicit as you are. I don't think it's me. If it's me, it's about some chapter in my life that I dread to even walk through, but I don't think it's me. Maybe at that moment the king spreads his hands out before the musician and says, You know, Asaph, I have this deep inner feeling that it's about the Messiah, the, the hope of Israel, the seed of the woman that will bruise the serpent's head. I have this deep sense that somehow or another he is the one who's going to be pierced. He's going to be the one who is lifted up and gazed upon. Evil men will surround him like ravenous wolves. He'll be laughed at, mocked, rejected, and despised. My, what an amazing passage of Scripture. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, David is prophesying not only the horror and the physical agony of the death of Jesus, but he is literally describing a portrait of crucifixion. The amazing thing about that is that the ancient Jew knew nothing about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a form of torture and death that was invented by the Romans many, 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 many years later. And David is describing under the prophetic impulse of the Spirit of God a form of death that he has never seen. He is witnessing 
of the suffering servant described in Isaiah before Isaiah prophesied about the servant himself. The peak of the 22nd Psalm is the peak of messianic suffering. The, the agony of the Christ lifted up high for all the world to see. Suffering, rejected, despised, counted by men as forgotten by God. His bones pulled out of joint by the gravitational pull against his body. Pinned by the cruel nails through his flesh. The agony of thirst so, so, that, his, so that his tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth. And, and he cries out I, from the cross, I thirst. And... The only thing that sinful humanity offers is a, is a sponge soaked in vinegar. He cries out from the cross, these very words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These very words. I've meditated on these words at the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've, I've wondered, uh, as perhaps you have, at, at what point in the childhood or the adolescence or the adulthood of, of Jesus did he see the words and realize that they were applicable to him? I wonder if at some point Jesus as a child with the scroll of the Psalms open on his little lap, read the words at the beginning of Psalm 22, and, and, and it just went into him like a, like a night. The same child that said, don't you know that I have, to, I have to be about my father's business? Maybe with tears streaming down his little face, he, 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 he looked at those words and he said, this is my father's business. At some point it sank into him. Do you think it was an accident that the most, at, at, in the most horrendous moment of his life, with his life being ripped out of him, without a moment to think or go back intellectually over verses of Scripture to try to find an appropriate passage, that up out of his, his innermost being, he cried, Eli, Eli, lima, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was no accident that he said those words. He said those words knowing that, that, they, uh, that they understood Psalm 22. They all knew the context. They knew the, the, the words of the psalm. And it was his way of saying, this is how it had to be. This is how it was planned before the foundation of the earth. Jesus had looked forward for years knowing that this passage was about his own death. The peak of divine agony where God the Creator died for man the creature's sins. The mountain of Calvary, the, the mountain of shameful, inglorious death. And yet, it is the peak from which man is able to see God most clearly. David was surely in touch with God when he wrote Psalm 22. Then from Psalm 22 to Psalm 24, as we see another mountain... From the peak of Psalm 22 going past the valley of the shadow of death and on to the peak of Psalm 24, we, we see David maybe calling Asaph the musician again on another day and he says, quick, send a messenger, send a runner for Asaph and tell him to come. And Asaph arrives breathless and he says, what is it, your majesty, another song? David says, yes, yes, I want you to hear this. And they sit down and I picture David saying, now listen creatively, Asaph. I, I want you to think about how you're going to orchestrate this and how the, about how the singer's going to come in. Now listen to this song. And he begins to sing to Asaph. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell within therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Which, by the way, if you don't know, that's just a word that means pause and ponder what is just said. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Asaph, the chief musician, says, Oh, your majesty. Oh, your majesty, that's just, that's magnificent. I've, I've never heard anything like it. I, it just makes my soul soar. I can just imagine it with the voices in the orchestra in the background. It'll just be magnificent. The people will be singing it in the streets, all through the streets of Israel. It's going to be the greatest song that we've ever sung in the temple. Then he said, But your majesty, who, who is it? Is this about you? Are, are you the king of glory? Who is this king of glory? And David says, not me. Not me. The Messiah, the, the Christ of the ages, the anointed one for whom we wait. And I can see Asaph sitting there and mulling this over. And I can imagine, imagine him saying, well, you know, your majesty, I, I, I love you and I appreciate you so much. Your talent is so far beyond mine and I'm constantly intimidated. But, but I, just, I just have to have, ask, ask this question. I, I, just, I just want to ask you, is this the same Messiah that you just tortured two songs ago? The one that, that's arriving through the gates of splendor, is he the same one that was rejected, despised, and counted as abandoned by God, whose bones were out of joint? Is he the one whose garments sinful men cast lots and gamble for, his clothing? Is this the same one whose hands and feet were pierced? Are, are we talking about the same messiahs here? David says, you know, I, I don't claim to get this. I'm not claiming that I understand this. I don't understand how this could be the same Messiah who is lifted up on the peak of human suffering and agony beyond anything we've know, ever known. I don't know what it means to have his hands and his feet pierced and to have his bones pulled out of joint. I don't understand that. I don't understand what it means that subsequent to that somehow he's going to be received into glory as a majestic king, a warrior God. I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. But isn't it good? Well, my dear friends, I've got to tell you, that's about as sophisticated as my theology gets. I don't understand it either. I don't understand why God the Creator dies for man the creature's sins. I don't know why Messiah, who had never known anything but the unbroken presence of the Father, would leave the halls of heaven and take upon himself the form of man. And not only the form of man, but the form of a servant in an occupied territory. And not only that, but to die. And not only to die, but to die a death on the cross as a cr common criminal, rejected, despised, and counted forgotten by God. I don't know why he'd be buried in a borrowed tomb. I don't know why he, he would descend and become Emmanuel, God with I don't understand it, but isn't it good? Praise God, isn't it good? 
I don't know why on the third day the breath of God and the spirit of holiness according to the book of Romans would raise him from the dead. I don't know why he'd walk out of there. I don't know why he'd be received into heaven. I don't know why he would be accepted at the right hand of the Father Almighty God bearing my name written on the palms of his hand. I don't know why he'd bear me into the presence of God and pour his own blood out on the mercy seat and represent me before the judgment seat of God, before the righteousness of God and plead my case and with my and win my my innocence and justify my existence in the universe. I don't know why he would do that, but but isn't it good? Hallelujah, it's good. These are the twin peaks of Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. These are the great peaks that surround the valley, and the valley is the 23rd Psalm. The valley of human experience and human suffering. Now let's go into that valley. Go back to our earlier scenario. Now David calls Asaph and he says, let me sing another song for you. And he sings the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he sings it all the way to the end. And Asaph says, oh, oh, your majesty, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's going to comfort people as long as the psalms are sung. They're going to love it. And then he says, you know, you know, your majesty, I don't have any trouble understanding this one at all. This one is about me. Th this one's about me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows he said oh king david i understand this one this one's about my walk with god now in this life you see it's really fascinating to see the 23rd psalm as the valley of human experience our need now in this life seen between the twin peaks of the of theological truth theological truth. In the 22nd Psalm, you see the suffering of the Messiah. In the 24th Psalm, you see his reception into glory. But between his crucifixion and ascension to the right hand of the Father, I have to live my life. You see, the, the Christian gospel is not just pie, pie in the sky by and by. It's not that one day we get to go to heaven. That's not what it's about. The gospel is about a God who came and lived and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father who is still willing to descend into the pit of my human experience now in this life. I need to know that. I, I, that may not be important to anyone else in this place today, but, but it's important for me to know that God takes care of me, that he feeds me, that he provides for me, that he defends me, that he watches over me, that, that he restores me, that he builds me back, that he leads me to places that are peaceful, that he, that he makes sure that I have food to eat and water to drink, that he anoints my head with the oil and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that he prepares a table before me in the presence of the enemy, enemy of my soul, and that, and that when it's all over with, I'll dwell with him forever and ever and ever. You know, it's, it's no accident that in the 23rd Psalm, David is speaking of the relationship between man and God, a man and God. And, and in this psalm, he sees man as sheep. David, of course, was brought up as a shepherd. He knew a little bit about sheep. 
Now, I don't know a lot about sheep, but just only the things that I've read. I, I don't know it by experience, but I know that, that many of you in this room don't, don't, know, don't know much about sheep either. And, and if you're like me, you know, before I did, began to read about them, you just see them as fluffy, darling, sweet little creatures. But, but, but I, want to te- I want you to know that in mass, sheep are some of the smelliest, stupidest animals that God ever made. They, they, they must have a brain about the size of a field pea. Listen to this. This is the truth. You can take a whole flock of sheep and you can get them running in a circle. You can get them running on a certain path and you can lay a log down in front of them as they come. And the very first sheep, you can get him to jump over that log and, and, they, and as they keep going and jumping over that log, you can then remove the, the log from, from where it's lying there. And every sheep subsequent, every sheep that gets to that place will still jump over the log even though there's no log there. There's no log, there's nothing to jump over, but the sheep in front of him jumps, so I guess I better jump too. You can make a whole flock of sheep jump with no log. I'm here to tell you, God knew what he was talking about when he called church folk sheep. Can I get an amen? David says to God that we're like sheep. And there's a fascinating picture in here at this one point where it says, he leads me beside still waters. You know, I never knew what that meant, but I, I found out that sheep are such timid anim, animals that they will not drink from water that has much movement I, I, to it at all. The, the, those, these creatures, dying of thirst, are so frightful that they won't drink from water that is swiftly moving. You have to get them to a pool. Isn't that amazing? I tell you, I've seen that in my life a thousand times. The gushing torrential waters of the Holy Spirit are flowing by me, and God says, come and drink. And I look at it and say, bah. God says, come on, Hoskins, I've got a blessing for you. This is going to be the most exciting thing you've ever known. Drink. And I say, bah. but God is so merciful. You know, if it was me, if I was God, I would just drown the sheep. You know, I'd, be, I'd say, drink. I said, drink. Now you, I'll tell you water, you know, but not God, not God. He says, oh, all right, I'll lead you to a pool where the water is nice and quiet and peaceful, not much risk of anything. David sees a God who between the peaks of the divine suffering and the divine glory is willing to walk through every human experience with men and women who apart from his grace cannot even feed themselves. What a good God. Even through the last valley of human experience, even through this thing called death. You know, we, we have a wrong view of death. Uh, we, we must get a concept as part of our Christian understanding of, of what the physical experience of death is all about. You know, we as, as uh, we Pentecostals are some of the worst ones about not having any kind of intelligent understanding of death. Let, let me just state this categori- categorically. I want you to hear this very clearly. Death is not the worst thing to happen that can happen to a saint of God. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a saint of God. The Bible says in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And and we say, oh, this is so horrible. It's so terrible. He walked with God for 50 years. He died and has gone into the presence and the glory of God. He's walking on streets of gold, listening to the angels singing. He's looking at the face of Jesus. Oh, isn't it so sad? That's how we act. 
You know, I've done a lot of funerals in my day. I've preached funerals that were just awful, full of sorrow and regret and confusion, very little hope. But I've also preached at funerals where for the life of me, I just couldn't find anything sad. I've watched the spouses that were left behind, sat there beside the casket that contained the remains of a person that they loved with their very life as they raised their hands in worship and we sang together and worshiped God. I see that and I say, oh God, let me so live and so die that at my death, those closest to me will give glory to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now listen, not only mine, but somebody else's death. Even though I go through those things that, that, that seem as if I can't possibly live beyond the grief and the fear and the agony of the moment, even when I go through the, that deep turmoil of the soul, even beyond that, when I suffer bankruptcy, when I suffer depression, when I experience loss, when I go through things that bring pain and anxiety, anxiety beyond all of all those things that I think I can't handle. Listen, the same God who died for me walks with me in this valley. His rod and his staff protect me from the attacking lions. His rod and his staff give me direction. It's, it's a comfort to me to know that he's there. That, that's the wonderful thing about the guidance of God. He's got this stick to guide you. See, here, here's what, one of the reasons why a shepherd has a staff is because you cannot reason with a sheep. You, you can't. You, 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 you can look at him and say, now, now listen here, sheep. There, there's better pasture over that way than you've got here. And if you, if you go that way, it's going to take too long to get there. And so if you've ever studied geometry, you'll know that the shortest path between two points is a straight line. So I think we ought to go this way. What do you think, sheep? And the sheep's going to look at you and say, bah. No, you don't do that. What the shepherd does, and I know this sounds cruel, to, but this is, the shepherd just wumps him. Whack! And he goes that way. Now, listen, I just got to say, I don't know what your communication with God is like. You're probably all in such deep, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit that you never get whacked. But brother, I've been whacked. Can I get anybody else here? You've been whacked. I've been whacked, brother. I heard God saying things, turn right. And I didn't want to turn right. It didn't feel good to me to turn right. I couldn't see the pasture from there. So I just ignore it and then whack. And I'm like, yes, sir. Okay, I'm going right now. You see, the same rod and staff that comforts me by protecting me from the lions is the same rod with which he waxes. And those, those wax, by the way, are good, not bad. Divine guidance, even at its roughest moment, is still better than human intellect. How good to know that God is with me in this all the way through the valley. Then at the last part of the valley, the human experience of death is not something that anybody looks forward to. And I'm talking about the experience itself, the pain that may go along with it, the loneliness that may be experienced. Those, those are not things that we look forward to with anticipation. Those things are agonizing. They're, they're fearsome to us. And that's the reason it's so important not to deny people near to us who are dying fellowship about their own death. When, you're, when your grandma is, is dying and saying to you, I'm dying, don't look at her and say, oh, no, grandma, you're going to live forever. No, she's not going to live forever, and she knows that. She wants to talk about it with somebody. Sit down there and talk about it and listen to her and pay attention. 
Be there with her and take her hand and walk with her the first few steps into the valley with her. And then at some point you're going to have to release her hand and, and come back. But then Jesus is going to meet her there and walk with her the rest of the way. Jesus in the, in the valley of human experience so illuminates the valley of the shadow of death that it takes all of that nightmare of fear out of it. You know, I studied for my master's degree under Dr. Mark Rutland. You've heard me mention him a number of times. But I heard him tell one time of an experience he had when he was lecturing at a small international Bible college in London several years ago. And after one of the sessions, he felt particularly impressed to lay hands on each of the, of the, the young men that were in the class. And, and, uh, and, and he, he felt led to lay hands on them and to pray for each of them by name. Now, Dr. Rutland is not one that's, you know, that's typically given to things like a word of knowledge for individual people, for that sort of thing. But as he prayed for each one, he, he just felt so inclined to pray in a particular way and for, for each one. And it just seemed like they were just all words of encouragement. Your ministry will be blessed. God, is, God has a destiny for you. God has a plan for you. And there was just this sense of, of growing excitement in the room as he continued to pray for each one of them one by one. And each one of them received such positive words from God and, and words of affirmation in, about their character and their ministry and their future. And then he came to this Italian student named Giuseppe. Dr. Rutland reached over and put his hands on his head and was ready to pray for him, just as he'd done for all of the others. And, and Dr. Rutland, suddenly, out of nowhere, he just felt this agony shoot through his very being. And he felt a witness in his heart that this young man was going to suffer terribly for the sake of the gospel. He saw it as clearly as if he was standing here looking at one of you. That's what he sensed. And he saw the witness in his heart that this young man would know terrible pain and loss and rejection. And, and Dr. Rutland, in his heart, said, Lord, I can't say this to this, to this young man. I, I just can't say this. And he felt the Holy Spirit say, well, then you're only half a prophet. So Dr. Rutland said, son, I'm going to tell you what I'm experiencing right now from the Lord, but I don't know if, this is, if I'm in the spirit or in the flesh. This so confuses me. And he began to tell him, the young man what he was seeing. And that young man's body just began to be racked with sobs. He fell down on the floor weeping and crying and every other student in the room was weeping and crying and they came and gathered around Giuseppe and were praying for, for him and finally a, a student from Nigeria stood up and said, Dr. Redlin, there's no way that you could know what happened in, in our chapel service a week before you arrived. He said in the chapel service a week before you arrived, Giuseppe stood up and said that he had had a revelation from God, a vision that God had called him to go to the Islamic world. He said as soon as he graduates from Bible school, he's going to go to the Islamic world and he's going to stand up in public places and he's going to publicly preach Jesus. Even if they cut off his hands, even if they cut out his tongue, even if they throw him in prison or if they chop off his head, he's determined to go. And he said, God said to him, Go and obey me, but I, but, but I want you to know that you'll suffer worse than anything you've ever dreamed of in your life. Even your family, he said, in Italy will think you've gone mad and they'll despise you. Dr. Rutland dropped down to his knees beside Giuseppe. He said, Giuseppe, I had no way of knowing that. He said, how will you face these things? Now listen to this. Giuseppe said, if God allows me, I will preach the full gospel of Christ 
in Mecca itself. Because I know that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Christ is with me. Glory to God. What a hero. That's a young man who gets it. You see, he he understands what Christ has done for him. What can happen to him? The Christ who suffered for him has redeemed him. And the Christ who has redeemed him will also receive him. And if the Christ who has redeemed him and will, will receive him, he will also walk with him in this valley of human experience. That's what makes saints into heroes. It's, it's, a, it's the sure and certain knowledge that he was despised that I might be received. It's the sure and certain knowledge that he was rejected that I might be accepted. It's the sure and certain knowledge that he was crucified that I might be raised. That he was despised that I might be received into glory. Psalm 24, the, the great messianic triumphant passage As you see Christ raised from the dead, as he moves through the dimensions of time and space and and the angels are gathering around him, here's the returning prince of heaven and the angels rejoicing and singing and praising as they approach the walls of heaven and the, the lookout on the walls of heaven looks down and sees the approaching crowd and said, who goes there? Who approaches the walled city of the mighty God? Who is coming? And the voice of the herald angel shouts, open wide the gates, throw open the ancient doors and the king of glory will come in and the guard says who is this king of glory and the answer rings out the Lord of hosts mighty in battle he is the king of glory hallelujah can you imagine the saints of God raised triumphantly beyond the pale of of human suffering with whom God has walked through the valley of the shadow of death then also approach the walls of the heaven and they say, open wide the gates, throw open the ancient doors and the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? It is Jesus who dwells in my heart. Who can keep you out at that moment? Who can keep you out? If Christ dwells in you by faith, then not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not Things past, not things to come, not powers, nothing under the earth, nothing above the earth, nothing in the earth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a way to live. What a way to live. The best place to live. Hallelujah. You know what? It's the only way to live. And bless God, it's the only way to die. Now I'm going to ask you boldly, straight out as we close. Is Jesus walking with you hand in hand through the valley of your experience right now? I'm not asking about your future salvation. I'm not asking if you're a good person. I'm not asking if you attend church. I'm asking you, are you walking with God right now? Do you know His presence? Do you know His guidance? Do you know His protection? Is He anointing your head with the oil of the Holy Spirit? Is He leading you to still waters and to greener pastures in your spiritual life? Is He daily restoring your soul? If not, then you need the Lord Jesus Christ in your life now. The second question is this. If you had to walk through this valley of the shadow of death this very day, this very day, are you 100% sure that the Messiah of all the ages would walk through that valley with you?
Are you 100% sure that Jesus would accept you into glory? You know, if you go to London, you can actually go and visit the room where John Wesley died. Great man of God, used by God in many, many ways. And as Wesley lay in, in that bed dying, gasping his last few breaths, with people around him, they were just weeping and mourning. Wesley roused himself with his typical, typical strength of character and he said, will you stop this? He said, somebody sing a hymn. And the people around him began to sing and praise God and rejoice in the Lord their God. And as Wesley began to draw his last breath, he began to utter words that were barely audible. And Wesley's trusted friend leaned down and near to, to his, his mouth and, and Wesley, Wesley whispered in his, in his ear, the best part is God is with us. Now I'm asking if you died this very morning, are you 100% sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you could say with Wesley, the best part is God is with me and in me by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. See, when this is all said and done, when this life is all over, there's really only going to be one question that you'll be asked. That one question is, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? He won't ask you if you did good things. He won't ask you if you joined a church. He won't ask you if you were a nice person. You can be a member of this church. You can be involved in ministry. You can join every church from here to Kalamazoo if you want to. It will not save you at the judgment seat of God. Are you born again? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is walking with you in your life now? And do you know that He will walk with you through the valley of death? If you're not sure, what a wonderful moment that it would be to make sure. To say, Lord Jesus, come and live in me. Come and live through me. Come and walk with me. You know how simple faith is. Don't, don't overcomplicate this. If, there, if there's anybody in this place who, who would reach up his hand in his heart and say, Lord, take my hand. Walk with me. I'm tired of walking my way. I want your way. I repent. I receive you now as my shepherd, as the owner of my life, as my Lord. In that very moment, the Lord of life will come to you. Would you bow your head and and pray, every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, as we come into your presence, I thank you, Lord, for the assurance that we have for those that are in Christ that, that even that last valley that we face, the one that, that uh, brings so much dread and fear and sorrow in our lives, that even that, we, we don't have to fear it. That God, because of what you did at the cross and because we know that the, of the coming day when we will... We will be with you in glory, Lord. We, we know that even though as we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we fear nothing because you are with us. Because Christ is with me. And Lord, I pray for those that are walking. Lord, we are walking in that valley of human experience right now. Every one of us are in different places. For some, 
They're in that place where everything is going great. They're drinking from the still waters. They're lying down in the green pastures. Everything is good. And for others, Lord God, they are walking through something right now that is very much like the valley of the shadow of death. They're walking through difficult times. They're walking through darkness and pain and suffering. And, and Lord God, I pray that today that they would be reminded that you are walking with them, that the shepherd is there with his rod and his staff, and we need fear nothing. Lord, if there's anybody here that, would, that is not sure, they've not made that decision, they've not simply surrendered to you and say, Lord, I, I'm tired of doing it my way. I want to do it your way. If they've never surrendered their life to you, pray, God, that today you would draw them by your spirit, that you would make this day the day of decision for them. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, and to do that because I don't want you to be thinking and worrying about what anybody else will think or what anybody else will say. really doesn't matter what they think or what they say. But between you and me, between you and God, how would you answer that question? Are you 100% sure that if you walk through that valley today, that Jesus would be there ready to receive you? That you would be received into glory, received into heaven? not going to happen because you're a good guy or a, or a nice person. Hell is going to be filled with good people who rejected Christ. But today you'd say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray with me because I want to make sure. I want to know. Today I want to know 100% certain, according to the Word of God, that I'm right with God, that I'm walking with Him. That if he should call today, I'd be ready. If that's you and say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. Pray, I want to pray a prayer. I want to do something. I want to make a decision today. I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise you that. But if that's you and you say, Pastor, pray with me. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Is there anybody? Yeah, several hands all over the place. Anybody else? Maybe you're online. You're watching the live stream. If that's you, just say, pray for me. Just type it in the comments. Say, pray for me. You can put your hands back down. Anybody else? I want to just simply pray a prayer. And listen, there's no magic formula. These are, these are not special words. In fact, the, the specific words that you say are meaningless. What really matters is, do you mean it from your heart? And I'm going to pray a prayer. And I'm going to ask everybody just to repeat this prayer after me because that will encourage those that are, that are making a, ch a choice today to follow Christ, that'll encourage them. But if, but if everybody would pray this prayer, just repeat this prayer after me. Would you do that? Just, just say this. Heavenly Father, I need Jesus. I want to be sure that if I die today, that I'd be accepted into heaven. And I know that I can't do that by being a good person. I can't remove my own sin, but you can. So I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the penalty for my sin. So in response, I'm going to turn my back on my sin. And I want to live for you. I surrender my life to you. I give you everything I am. All that I've done all that I am now and all that I will be. It's all yours. 
You are my Lord. I surrender to you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Now listen, if you pray that prayer in sincerity of heart, then something that's very silent and yet very spectacular and supernatural happens. Because when you pray a prayer simple like that, it doesn't have to be exactly those words, but just a simple prayer where you say, Lord, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you can save me. I give my life to you. When you pray that, the Bible says you pass from death to life. That's pretty supernatural. That, that old dead person, what does it mean to be dead? Death is separation. Physical death is when your body is separated from your spirit. Spiritual death is when your spirit is separated from God. And so that old dead spirit has come to life and now you're connected with God. You're a child of God. You are adopted into the family of God. That's Romans chapter 8. So this is a huge day. This is a wonderful day. This is a day to rejoice. Amen. With the rest of the body, would you just put your hands together just to say thank Jesus for what He's done and to welcome those who have made a prayer, made that decision. Amen. Listen, I want to pray for you. We'll be dismissed here in just a moment, but I want to pray for you before we go. Father, I thank You for Your presence. I thank You that You are with us every step of the way in this life, that every valley we go through, every situation we face, You've already been there. You already know about it. And you're there to see us through. You're walking with us. And I pray, God, as we prepare to leave this place, that today, God, that you would let your spirit rest upon us, anoint our heads with the oil of the spirit. Let us walk into this community with purpose and with power. Let us make a difference this week. Let us touch the lives of people. Use us, God, everywhere we go. Let us be ready. Help us to be ready to be used, God, so that you can open doors. And in that moment, in, in, in an instant, we're ready to respond to the need. I pray that you would help us to walk in your grace, to walk in your favor, that people would see your hand on our lives. They would see the difference you've made in us. And they would say, tell me about why you're different. Give us those kind of divine appointments this week. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.